Welcome to Four Questions Four, a podcast by Osgood Hall Law School presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Professor Cynthia Williams, Osler Chair in Business Law and Co-Director of the Hennick Centre for Business and Law at Osgood, will have four questions for alumna Diane Sachs, one of Canada's most respected environmental lawyers, on the topic of the climate change crisis. Dr. Diane Sachs is President of Sachs Facts, a business providing strategic advice and presentations on climate, energy, and the environment. She has more than 40 years' experience writing, interpreting, and litigating Ontario's energy and environmental laws. She served as the Environmental Commissioner of Ontario from 2015 to 2019, during which time she issued 17 reports to the Ontario Legislature on energy, environment, and climate issues. She is also a McMurtry Visiting Fellow at Osgood and York's Environmental Studies in 2019-20. to Welcome, Diane. Seems that every day uh, there are reports from around the world of evidence of the climate crisis, from the fires in Australia to Labrador's melting permafrost to rising ocean levels. But let's start closer to home with question one. Where does Ontario stand now on climate action? Is it going in the right direction? Ontario had a lot to be proud of until the 2018 election. We were, we had a price on carbon. Um, We closed our coal-fired electrical plants between 2005 and 2014. That was the largest single reduction in North America. Uh, We were spending the money raised by the carbon price on 550 really good policies and programs. Um, And we were starting on, on adaptation. Since the 2018 election, we've been pretty much going in the opposite direction. Our climate law was revoked. Our climate targets were watered down to basically almost nothing. We're doing almost nothing to even achieve those targets. The major drivers of emissions in Ontario are urban sprawl. Urban sprawl has been turbocharged by this government. The places to grow the growth plan has been substantially weakened, so there's more and more low-density development, which is the largest driver of our emissions. We're subsidizing natural gas expansion, a fossil fuel that creates locks into a long-term dependence, uh, cutting the gas tax to increase use of gasoline, which is our most polluting fossil fuel in Ontario now that we've mostly eliminated coal. It's really hard f- on, on the question of reducing our climate pollution, which is our greatest urgency. I can't think of anything positive that the current government has done. They're a little better on adaptation that is getting ready for what's coming because it is increasingly obvious that we're into the climate crisis. It's no longer something that I worry about just for my children and my grandchildren, although I do, of course. But I can't count on dying on time anymore either. And there is, we can see billions of dollars of damage around the world, and a lot of that in Ontario. Uh, Just in 2018, just in Ontario, from extreme weather, we had $1.4 billion 
in insured losses as reported by the Insurance Bureau of Canada. And their estimate is that the public sector, mostly municipalities, suffers $3 billion in losses and damage to public assets and infrastructure for every billion that the insurance companies lose. Uh, the Insurance Bureau worked with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities to look at what municipalities need right now to prepare for cl the climate crisis and to adapt to the changes that are already happening. Their best estimate was $5.3 billion a year. The provincial government has offered, as far as I can tell, precisely nothing towards that. The only thing they've done, and th this is useful and should have been done a long time ago, is to say, all right, we should actually figure out where our greatest vulnerabilities are. Yes, that is useful. It shouldn't take three years. So they've timed it to, so they don't get the results until after the next election. But yes, of course, we should know where we are most vulnerable, and we should be able to learn from other people's examples. Well, given that uh, the Ontario government has turned its back on progress on reducing climate pollution, and given the overwhelming evidence that climate change is here and is having direct effects on people's lives, uh, that brings me to question two. You know, given the enormity of the climate crisis, can individuals make a difference? Yes, absolutely. Individuals can make a difference, particularly in democracies uh, where we get to choose our leaders. The very last thing I did before my office was abolished, um, Mr. Ford's government abolished my office probably because I issued a report showing the truth about what they were doing on climate. But the very last thing we did was issue a document, a fact sheet, on the carbon footprint of individual Ontarians. Because I was asked this by hundreds of people, uh, what can I do that makes the most difference? And the facts were never provided by the government. So we did that ourselves. And one half of the average Ontarian's carbon footprint comes from just four things. Driving, and we drive the most climate polluting cars in the world. Heating homes, and mostly we have uh, leaky homes that leak heat. Flying and eating beef. So individuals do have a lot of opportunity to reduce their carbon footprint by paying attention, especially to those big ones. But in the larger picture, I mean, how much does that matter? The best guess that I found was that individual action amounts to about one-third of the solution. It's important. It matters. It matters how you influence your neighbors and your friends. You set a good example how you influence the companies you buy from. If you buy greener products, they change to provide those greener products. But that still leaves two-thirds of the problem. Two-thirds of the problem needs collective action. The climate crisis is a collective problem. It needs collective action, and that is first and foremost what governments were invented for, to collect collective action that is in all of our interests. But that's not the only story. So we can't leave the climate crisis or the environment generally just to government. That was the whole point of the Environmental Bill of Rights. And what we see now is that when governments don't do enough, everyone else has to step up. Individuals, corporations, investors. The rest of us can step up both by speaking up, simple, clear messages repeated often by a variety of trusted voices, by putting whatever pressure we can on collective organizations like pension plans to change how they c conduct themselves and also by political work, 
good old-fashioned political advocacy. When we vote for people uh, who take cl the climate issue seriously, and statistically women take it more seriously than men, but we, when we vote for people who understand the issue and understand both the risks and the huge opportunities, then we can have the enormous power of government laying down rules that make it easier for everyone to do the right thing and to hold on to the window of hope that remains. So you mentioned business as having a role in addressing climate change, both mitigation and adaptation, and finance. And I'm reminded of the expert panel on sustainable finance, federal expert panel, which had 15 recommendations for the financial community. I'm working with a professor at the University of British Columbia, Janice Sarah, doing work in the Commonwealth Climate and Law Initiative, evaluating boards of directors' fiduciary obligations to consider climate change in their strategies and in their disclosure. And that raises for me question three, what more can business be doing to take action on climate change? A lot. We've reached the point that everyone needs to do everything that they can. We're really late in the game and we're losing. The good news is that many businesses have recognized that they need to step up and become leaders, partly because of the inadequacy of government action and partly because there are real direct benefits um, to them as well as risks. So in terms of hiring the best young people, young people want to be part of climate solutions, not climate pollution. Uh, there was a sustainability and the Globe Scan issued a really interesting survey of public opinion ac across the world of the most knowledgeable people looking specifically at business uh, and their role on the climate crisis. And what they found was that increasingly the largest driver of corporate action is reputational risk as well as the physical risk to their own activities, the difficulty in hiring young people, the pressure that they're getting internally. Uh, we look at the $10 billion that Jeff Bezos announced this week. Well, would that have happened without the enormous public outrage by his own employees, by his own customers? We've got uh, Larry Fink, the manager of the largest investment pool in the world, with his letter a couple of weeks ago saying, in essence, that the climate protests led by young people have changed the conversation and that the, the largest question he's getting now from his clients, the investors, is what are you doing on climate? So these are comments that where individuals have taken action to put pressure on organizations, business organizations, which are now responding and which have collectively enormous power and in fact are doing all kinds of really interesting things, committing to 100% renewable energy, committing to getting their own impacts to net zero, putting pressure on their supply chains, getting concerned about the resilience of their supply chains, thinking about how they are going to profit in the green economy, and the disclosure piece that comes from the task force on TCFD, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures, enormously influential and important that as organizations have to, for the first time, figure out what their own footprint is, including that of their supply chain, many of them are shocked. Very few needed to know before. And as they find out, they can do something about it. Teachers' pension plan, perfect example. They put out their first report last year. Most of their impact was from companies they didn't know they owned. 
That is absolutely fascinating. I am reminded that uh, a recent study suggested that there were $26 trillion of opportunities out in the global economy in climate solutions. So it's not only risks that companies are identifying uh, by being more cognizant, but opportunities. And that brings us to our final question, question four. Is there hope for us uh, in easing the climate change crisis? Uh, what, what do you think? People always ask me, is it too late? And I have to say, too late for what? Is it too late for my children, my grandchildren, to have the same world ahead of them that I had when I was young? Yes, it's too late. We threw that away. Is it too late to avoid big disruptive changes? Yes, it's too late for that. We had all the science, we threw it away. But it's not too late yet to make a really big difference in what's ahead. Um, a number of scientists say that the decade we're in now is going to have really big pivotal importance maybe for a thousand years because of the tipping points that we face. So what I ask everyone to do is three big things. The first thing is to figure out your own carbon footprint and reduce it. I used to say 5% a year. It's now clear it's got to be faster than that, more like 7.5% a year, starting today. Whatever you did already, that's wonderful. Thank you. Now do more. The second thing is to get ready for what's coming. We know there's going to be more variability, uh, more unpredictability more damage, more floods, more heat. There's going to be more emergency breakdowns. We need to be more self-sufficient than we're used to being, and we need to be able to help our neighbors more than maybe we're used to doing. And the third thing, and the most important, and maybe the most un-Canadian, is to speak up. We have to talk about climate. We have to talk about it all the time. We have to talk about it till people are sick of hearing us talk about it. We have to talk about, yes, that we're in a real problem because that's the first step. But it's not enough to just say, okay, things are really bad. They are really bad. We have to face the facts first. The only recipe for hope that I know is knowledge plus action equals hope. You have to start by looking at the facts, but you mustn't stop there. The second step is to look around, find other people, and take action with them. Take action with them on something concrete that you care about. For some people, it's biodiversity. Do something to protect natural spaces. For some people, it's biking. Biking is a lot of fun. For some people, it's food. Lots of people like to get into food. For some people, it's beer. There's, because the climate crisis affects everything, there are so many roots into it. The point is, Know the facts, choose an action plan, find people to do it with, and then do it and talk about it. Well, thank you. You've inspired me. And I hope you've inspired uh, some of our listeners. Do we have um, a website for more information from Dr. Diane Sachs? Well, thank you so much for asking. I was supposed to say that and forgot. Um, please do go to my website. Uh, uh, it's saxfacts.com, S-A-X-E-F-A-C-T-S. Among other things, I've 
reposted there all 17 of my reports that the public already paid for, uh, which have a huge range of information, and I do continue to post there on a regular basis. So I, I hope to see you there, and thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to Four Questions for by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>